Welcome, friends, to yet another episode of our podcast. You're joined by your favorite girls, Anna and Cushy. Um, so, Cushy, it's been eight months since we recorded our last <laughs> episode. Um, what were your thoughts on listening back to that New Year's Eve episode? I was deeply traumatized listening to our last episode. <laughs> we recorded it on New Year's Eve and like we usually use our New Year's Eve episodes as an opportunity to, you know, reflect on the year that was and share our hopes for the year that's coming. And so hearing just how sort of, you know, naive we were about what was to come was kind of quite jarring. Um yeah. So, <laughs> so to take everyone back to our last episode, we yeah, we usually do our New Year's Eve episodes. Um, I think we sort of both hit a bit of a slump in um, just generally, you know, career and life and stuff. And so it was it it wasn't entirely um, naive, I suppose, in terms of it's not like we were thinking this year was going to change the world we did think this year was going we were going to you know uproot our lives um I looked back on some of the previous episodes and it was there was one about quitting your job (laughs) um all this stuff um and now we're here in the middle of stage four um lockdown where we have curfews at 8 p.m we're only allowed (laughs) our one hour walk day um so what has happened in your life since then, I think you should start by by your your birthday, actually. Oh God, yeah, my birthday was this year. <laughs> um, my I birthday, know <laughs> it was a grand old time. I took myself to Tassie for my thirtieth, um, and it was yeah a really nice time. And I was sort of getting ready for what I thought was going to be all of the change coming in the next couple of months. So I quit my job in the first week of March, uh, major lulls. Um, and I was, you know, planning on traveling interstate and overseas and most likely relocating to the NT. Um, and then, yeah, the world sort of just turned upside down and with it, all of my plans for this year. Um, so here we are. <laughs> It's really hard to, you know, just encapsulate like when I'm reflecting because there's just so much that's happened. Like it's like whenever someone asks you how are you going and you're like, I have no idea how to answer that question anymore. <laughs> it's a it's a big order we're asking you for because it's eight months of a recap, eight months True. of a global pandemic. True. Um and it's almost a bit unfortunate that, you know, in January and February and a part of March, we didn't get a chance to catch up and and record something, mm. uh, you know, at that cusp of it. Um, because I, re- I remember when we went away to Inverloch during January and, you know, um, coronavirus spreading in Wuhan was just kind of in the background because, um, well, for mm. most people who would be listening to this who are Australians, We've had some of our worst bushfires during January and parts of February and um, complete devastation. And for us in metropolitan Melbourne, like there was a real sort of physical presence about the bushfires that maybe other years haven't quite been felt because, 
you know, people were starting to buy out on masks and stuff back then because of the smog and all of that. So um, it's just been a long year. Yeah. I mean, you know, I reflect back and it feels like both one of the longest and the shortest years, like simultaneously. So like, yeah, like you said, like each year kind of has its defining moments, right? And like for us, the start of the year was the bushfires, um, which was a real shame at the time because, you know, we're both like, you know, lovers of summer, um, but we couldn't really immerse ourselves in it because we were conscious of the fact that, you know, there were all these people in Australia and specifically in Victoria that were just really suffering at that time. So in comparison, you know, coronavirus was like in the background. Yeah, and at that point, we hadn't had many diagnoses in Australia yet either. So it was such a far remote point. And I think back to that time when we were, you know, away in Inverloch and on the beaches and it was so packed and there were people everywhere and we were sitting in cafes and stuff like that. And so, you know, um, to paint a picture of what life is like now, like we are in stage four lockdown, which means um, restaurants have been closed to dining since stage three. Um, which essentially started what mid was it April from April to about June we were in stage three. Um, God, this year's just like you said. There's no <laughs> defining features of this year anymore, so it's all sort of molded into one. But yeah, I think that sounds about right. That's when we first started working from home. Um, mm. So late March till June, we had a very brief respite for it feels like maybe a month to six weeks where we were in stage two um, and we're, we're able to go to restaurants again and to go to cafes um, but with very strict sort of social distancing and contacting rules and stuff like that. And then, um, oh, it would have been four or five weeks ago, we had our, our stage four announcement, which was um, devastating to say the least. Um, and I think there's a huge sense of feeling like a big sense of failure as a, you know, as a state because the rest of Australia is relatively unscathed. Like we've, we've seen our interstate friends essentially return back to life as normal. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely one of the distinguishing features, I think, between, you know, lockdown 1.0 and lockdown 2.0. Um, at the beginning, we kind of all felt like we were in it together and we had this like common objective. Um, whereas now I think people in Victoria and specifically in Melbourne are just feeling really wary and weary about the whole thing. Um, and I don't know about you, but I've definitely felt this sense of real, <laughs> I hate to admit this, but like real bitterness and resentment about the fact that everyone's gone back to what life was like and we're probably in the worst of it right now? I think I, I've i been feeling it more as this has dragged on and I think ever since you sort of um, started mentioning it um, because, yeah, I listen to a lot of podcasters who are in Sydney and their lives are just completely normal and you know I get that like you know you're not going to dwell on something that doesn't affect your state but um when I see that I'm just like we didn't do anything wrong like uh, it would be mm. one thing if we were all 
as a state acting irresponsibly. And I think at the beginning when, um, you know, there was that kind of interstate rivalry and everyone kind of jabbing each other, um, there were lots of allegations of Melbournians acting improperly and sort of bringing it on ourselves. But, you know, that's, that couldn't be further from, from the truth for, for the majority of Victorians who have done the right thing and mostly been at home and done their bit. It's a small minority who may have acted improperly um, and who may have, you know, as we're watching the hotel quarantine inquiries and um, allegations of notes from security guards and being passed amongst quarantined people and things like that, those very small instances, yes. But I do think um, a lot of the, the doctors have said that and the health experts have said that it was down to luck, like this could have happened anywhere, um, you know, with the systemic failures that I think we will see as this inquiry goes on. They're the same failures we're seeing in other states now and, like, if they don't act swiftly and if they don't learn from Victoria's mistakes, then this could very well be their situation too. So I guess that's a really long-winded way of saying I'm deeply frustrated that it's down to luck somewhat um, and down to circumstance and that in a way we are still all in it together because, and perhaps that's in a more negative way, because if Victoria doesn't recover economically, the rest of the country is doomed as well. That's true. I mean, we all have a stake in things getting better down here. Um and, you know, I mean, it all seems like doom and gloom right now, but I have felt slightly more hopeful in the last couple of days, um, in part because the numbers are actually trending down, um, but also because, you know, we are entering spring and there is this sort of sense of, like, you know, rejuvenation and, like, starting from scratch. So... I'm I'm trying to kind of be hopeful but also not too hopeful at the same time because I think that's what's also made this lockdown so much harder because when we transitioned from like stage three to stage two, two it was like, oh, okay, things are getting better, like, you know, and we they're only going to get better it. from here. Yeah, and, you know, mm. um, yeah, so I think, you know, I think the sort of the stuff that's been happening um sort of on a macro level has really kind of had a big impact on a micro level because, yeah, I remember, you know, not so long ago being really stressed out about the fact that I thought I was going to have to sell my apartment, which now also feels really long ago but also doesn't feel really long ago. (laughs) Um, It's like, yeah, I have no sense of time this year. (laughs) It was almost as if you were so blasé about, oh, yeah, I'll just have to sell it. Like, yeah, I do remember that period too. And so there's so many things you haven't um, updated. Like you didn't finish your update. <laughs> I don't know. Where do I start? I, I um... turned 30, quit your job. Uh, yes. Yes. I turned 30. I quit my job. I was in the process of organizing all this travel interstate and overseas. COVID hit. And then I was like, shit. Um, all my plans are cancelled, um, both travelling and relocation-wise. Um, I also now don't have a job. Um, luckily, I did sort of hold on to a casual position that I had with my former employer, but that was quite, like, sporadic in terms of hours. Um, and I did go through periods and weeks where I just literally had no work at all. 
um, which was really, really difficult to readjust to because I think in times of like uncertainty like this, we all try and like cling on to our routines and work mm. is such a large part of forming a routine. And so when you don't have that, you feel quite directionless almost. Um, Absolutely. So. And I think that was something that we take for granted when we're not in this type of situation. So, for instance, when I took my time off, and that's what this was meant to be for you, um, there were elements of routine that it was independent of work. So, for instance, you can go to the yoga studio, you can go um, to the cafe, you can go to the bookstore and buy a book, you could do volunteering, you could do certain things, but this pandemic has shut down our entire social life, our entire, you know, those things, those crutches that get us through our days and our weeks, um, they're all shut now. (laughs) You can, and now with stage four. mm. No, I was just going to say, like, I remember when I kind of came to the realisation that I wasn't going to be travelling at all. Um, I was falling back on those things. So I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to sign up for yoga classes. Um, I'm going to like at least try and travel regionally or I'm going to, yeah, go to the cafe or go to the park and read my book. And even those things sort of weren't available to me. Um, So that just made it, yeah, exponentially more difficult. Um, And then also just living on my own. I think that has been a real struggle for me. Um, these past eight months. Um, For the most part, I've actually really enjoyed living on my own um, and the freedom that comes with it. And I haven't really minded living in a small apartment as well because I haven't really spent a whole lot of time in it. But yeah, again, this pandemic's turned all of that on its head. And so it's made me really question um, the whole idea of living on my own and living in a small space. So, yeah, I guess those are realisations that are important to have and maybe will inform sort of what I do in the future. I think that is a perfect segue into the first topic that we did want to cover in this episode, which is being single in a pandemic. So as we've discussed and with some of, um, you've discussed with some other friends as well, being single is not something that policymakers necessarily draw their attention to. So in the course of drafting the first um, stage three lockdown restrictions, initially there were um, the chief health officer's directions were that you can only leave the house for four certain reasons. Um, you could no longer visit people's houses. You could only visit for, um, for instance, for compassionate care reasons or child care. Um, and and certain things like that. But as we've discussed, that sort of left out um, a lot of single people. And at that point in time, it also left out people in relationships who weren't in the same households. Um, we saw a very quick backflip there from the chief health officer um, where he essentially allowed, um, I think it's like an, an exemption for from those rules for um, intimate partners, but the same wasn't expanded to um, single people. And so um, sort of what were your initial thoughts about those restrictions when they were introduced that sort of left single people out of that? Yeah, I mean, like 
I am very lucky in the sense that I do have friends, yourself included, that live within quite a short distance of where I live. Um, so when it came to leaving my apartment for those permitted reasons, like going to exercise or go shopping for your groceries and the like, um, I was able to sort of go with at least one of my friends um, to do those things. But I think for people that live on their own and are single and don't have friends within a close radius, um, that was made really difficult for them. It essentially meant that they were not going to be having contact with any other people except themselves for an you know, uncertain period of time. Um, and I have a couple of friends that are in that situation. And, uh, you know, I understand why the Chief Health Officer made that exemption for people in intimate relationships. Um, people obviously value their intimate relationships a lot. But I think my problem wasn't so much that an exemption was granted for that, but that an exemption was then not granted for other kinds of relationships. So um, for people that are single, um, or people that are even in relationships like yourself, like, you know, we often talk about the fact that we really value our friendships a lot and we value our relationships with our families a lot. And mm. I was just curious to see, you know, why it was that we were willing to make this exemption for one kind of relationship and not another kind of relationship and kind of the value that we place on different kinds of relationships in society. I'm so glad that's kind of been given the um, the oxygen that it needs because um, just before we started this recording, you showed me um, some tweets from Jill Stark, who's a journalist, and she's been talking about this for for quite some time. Um, but it does appear that the chief health officer is now considering whether or not um, to introduce sort of like a New Zealand style bubble. Um, so you get like a particular bubble of people that you um, are in your life and you don't deviate from bubbles so if you've established like a bubble between you and your best friend then that's the bubble you can't then go and ex you know make another bubble with someone else um I think aside from um people who are our age I also think um what your observations are also very true of like older people like pensioners or people sort of our parents age who may be widows or divorced or what for whatever reason are single and um you know strictly speaking a visit from your children like your family members and stuff wouldn't fall within the the four grounds for instance because you don't necessarily need compassionate uh, you're not sick or anything like that but you need the company of having your family member or your friend or whoever there because like before this whole pandemic hit Loneliness is an epidemic in um, Western societies, um, especially, um, you know, for migrants who move over here and whose kids become very westernised. I think it's 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 increasingly becoming an issue now as um, people our generation sort of um, distance themselves from the old ethnic ways of, you know, um, looking after your elders and, and living with them and that type of thing. So mm. I think the argument, yeah, it's it's good that it's being reconsidered now because I would hate to think of all the people who are sort of holed up by themselves and don't want to trouble people and they're slowly the ones being more and more marginalised and isolated from society. 
what do you think of that argument that some people have made against sort of expanding the exemption, which basically centers around the fact that if you create a bubble, that you will have people that use and abuse that bubble and that they won't confine themselves to that one best friend they can see. They will then use it also as an opportunity to see other people in their lives. Look, I think it's a concern, but it's a concern that already exists with the intimate partners um, ground. Like I've been, I've been across numerous like Facebook groups where other um, single girls have been saying, like on Tinder, for instance, um, you know, they've been approached by guys who are using that ground as a means of circumventing the um, the directions and the spirit of it. So just because it's technically legal doesn't mean it's necessarily in the spirit of the law. Um, and so, you know, they're going around sleeping with everyone and saying that they're technically covered up. And how is that any more hygienic than, because if I was going to visit like a best friend, I wouldn't be having sex with them. I wouldn't be, you know, commingling our bodily fluids, which I would argue is an increased risk of transmission, <laughs> having zero medical qualifications. But, um, you know, I think that's a more high risk situation than say if you're masked up and you're meeting with your friend and you're, you know, um, I think the argument for abuse is always going to be rife. Um, especially now given that everyone is quite exhausted. But we have to look at the bigger picture and I think the majority of the time people do act in accordance with the rules and you get a small minority of people who don't and ruin it for everyone else. But um, I'd be interested to see how it worked in New Zealand, for instance, because they're the ones who actually moulded themselves off the bubble model and um, had had significant success until very recently when, you know, this virus just reared its head unexpectedly again Mm. and I mean on the whole like yeah like you said there are always going to be people that use and abuse the rules right um I remember ranting and raving to you a couple of weeks ago about a friend of mine who decided that a girl that he'd been briefly seeing during the easing of restrictions was someone that was going to become his girlfriend when we went back into stage four and this is exactly what I mean (laughs) Yeah, and I just remember being really baffled by it because I'm like, so hold on a minute, you can go and visit this girl that you've been seeing for three weeks um, under the intimate partner exemption and I can't go and see my mother who's been a lifelong feature in my life. Like what does that say um, about us as a society and like the relationships that we value? Like of course you're going to have people that a single feeling like they're less than because you're essentially saying that their needs matter less and their relationships matter less just because they're not sort of defined within the confines of an intimate partner relationship. Um, so I completely agree. I don't like that excuse. I think there's always been a hierarchy of relationships in our society though. Um, and it it's, it's something that's baffled me for a really long time. Like I remember when I was 16 And um, I just have this pet hate and I've hated it since I was about 16. But And I don't even know who did this to me or how I've been so triggered by it because it's not like some big life event happened. But um, I just hate people who ditch their friends for their partners. It's something I hate so much. I've, (laughs) I've carried it with me since I was a teenager and I still carry it with me now. 
And I honestly don't even know how it came about because um, unlike you, it hasn't happened to me that I can recall. Like most of my friends, they've fallen into relationships, um, but they've they've been quite like-minded and they've never really taken our friendship for granted. And so I have no idea where it came from, but I read about it enough to know that it exists and I've heard it from other friends um, and their experiences and that type of thing. And so I... I absolutely, I, you know, we see it everywhere <laughs> um, outside of my bubble, I suppose, that um, there are a lot of people who do put a price on their relationships rather than on their friendships or on their family relationships and, and actually neglect those things, even though they're sorts of, the, they, they've sort of been the pillars that have brought you up until now. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. Like, I feel like these rules around the different kinds of relationships are sort of just a reflection of how we value different relationships, you know, pre-pandemic. And like you said, there is this sort of hierarchy of relationships. Even within, like, intimate partner relationships, there's a hierarchy, right? Like, there are those people that are married um, who generally sit at the top of that hierarchy. And then there may be those people that are in a de facto relationship or people that are straight versus people that are not. So, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it just makes me sad. (laughs) So you actually think people go around thinking that because they're a heterosexual married couple that they're somewhat better than a de facto um, couple? I don't think it's that, like, overt. Like, I don't imagine married couples sitting there thinking, yep, we sit at the top of the relationship hierarchy. But it is curious that when you do get into a relationship and as the relationship progresses, um, people around you and, you know, the people within that relationship start kind of questioning how they're progressing in that relationship. And that typically involves being like, okay, well, We've been seeing each other for X period of time. You know, when are we going to become exclusive? Um, Mm. When are we going to move in together? When are we going to get engaged? When are we going to get married? When are we going to have children? And sort of as you cross off each box, you're kind of moving up the rungs of that Mm. um, relationship hierarchy. That's an interesting Um, way of putting it, the hierarchy. Because when I think of hierarchy, I think people at the top looking down at those at the bottom. Um, and I, I, from personal experience, I don't think that's the case because, but also like I haven't really done any of those things either, but, um, you know, like I haven't done the big ticket items for me. I I think personally, they're sort of milestones, um, that you tick off as a couple, but it doesn't necessarily mean your relationship is any better than anyone else's. Um, it's sort of, it's, it's down to to teamwork and and the the choices you make within that team, Um, which, you know, like I've had a lot of like this isolation period has has meant a lot of time to think about and reflect on all of those relationship milestones and what I want to get out of my life. And um, it's really brought home the fact that when you are in a long-term relationship, decisions start um, being like the big ticket ones start being more of a team activity rather than necessarily being just dictated on on your personal uh, whims. And so, yeah, I, I don't see it so much as as what my definition of hierarchy is, which is um, involves a certain element of 
looking down on on people as you're climbing up? Um, I mean, I think most people would not be inclined to be looking down on other people, like as they're moving sort of on top of those rungs. But I kind of do wonder how much of people's own personal desires about those items is informed by sort of at least subconscious social expectations that they be ticking off those items. Like it's that it's that conundrum between trying to figure out what you genuinely want out of your relationship and how much of that is actually informed by social expectations that people have of your relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And I think that's something we've talked about since the very beginnings of our friendship. Like I remember us sitting at Monash and talking about to what extent um, the desire to be a mother is social conditioning. And you made a comment that it's these decisions are never made in a vacuum. If there's any sense of um, hierarchy, I think it's it's mostly from society. Like for a long time, the fact that we had to even argue about same-sex marriage, the institution of marriage was being put particularly by the conservatives that it is this sacred institution that's only available mm. to men and women who, you know, are blah, blah, blah. And then on the complete flip side, you've got stupid shows like Married at First Sight. So, mm. um, you know, marriage has been held to be this sacred heterosexual um, stage that you unlock when you're a certain level mm. of chastity or something. It's just got some weird, you know, Victorian era type vibes to it. And so it's that sort of discourse, I think, that's shaped the way that society is seen marriage because then you have people who are, are fighting for same-sex marriage because they want access to that right as well. And so then everyone's viewing it, like, you know, as this big thing, um, irrespective of sexuality. And so um, I think as a society we built it up to be, uh, or maybe not built, but reinforced it to be this big thing because it's always sort of been a big thing. How have you wrestled with that? Because I've always been someone that's been firmly opposed to marriage, um, whereas you've been someone that's sort of, I guess, been more of a subscriber to it. Like how are you able to establish that it is something that you genuinely want for your relationship as opposed to something that you're socially conditioned to want for your relationship? Oh, I think that's a really hard question because there's so many facets to it. Um, and it's also um, hard because my partner um, is the same as you. Like it's it's definitely not, marriage is not something that he would do um, independently and isn't something necessarily he, he wants to do. And so, um, oh, where do I even begin with that? I think the first thing about <laughs> marriage to me is that it's aspirational. Like um, I've grown up mm -hmm. with a family and my parents who got married, but, you know, it wasn't a good relationship and not necessarily something I'd want to emulate on my own. And, and most people would use that to be, to be a case of, that's why you shouldn't get married because you end up, you know, miserable and hating on people and stuff like that. But I think that's sort of where it taps into my sense of aspiration and almost wanting to 
to do it better and to rewrite the narrative of what marriage means for me and, you know, any children I might have, um, I'm pretty hopeful that I could do it differently. Um, And I think it's just a sense of commitment that, and I know it's all purely symbolic because like I've been in a very long-term relationship and if you want to talk about the substance, like that's a long time that's committing to a person for over a decade and, you know, not, not um, dating anyone else and, and blah, 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 like entwining your lives in that sense. But there's just something about it where, um, and I've been to a few weddings this year and I generally hate weddings, but one of my friends, Jade, got married and it was a really small and intimate ceremony. And it was probably the first time that I genuinely felt what a, a wedding should be like, which is essentially showcasing and celebrating, maybe not so much showcasing, but more celebrating and very genuinely celebrating with the people that you love and who have always been there and um, have always supported and rallied for your coupledom um, and for you as a family. And I think that was the first point where I was really like, you know, I I would want to get married because I would like to be able to share that with all my family and friends who have been there and who have supported me personally, but also to welcome, like formally welcome, um, you know, someone into the family as well. And then I think the third answer would be, and I, you know, I'm really lucky my parents don't pressure me into anything and it's not a big deal. Um, Unlike I know a lot of other traditional parents, it's a a very big deal for them, Um, but I haven't had that. But I think there is sort of a sense of like, yeah, welcoming someone to the family very formally. And I know with older people in ethnic families, it is still seen that um, I think like what you were saying, like it, it does validate your relationship in a way that, that de facto doesn't um and not that I cared that much and that's probably why it's at the very bottom of my list but um you know just to make it easy on that aspect and then there's other legal and tax reasons as well which I'm not going to bore everyone with but um but yeah there are practical reasons to it because I've had this argument so many times with my partner about what um like are my reasons because you know we're all feminists and there really isn't a reason for marriage. Marriage is such a patriarchal institution if you go back to the historical roots of why it exists in the first place. Um, So, yeah. What about you? What are your reasons against it? Because I think amongst my peripheral friendship group, um, our friendship group is quite different because we've, on this topic, and and one day we'll get to the other topic of um, children, but we are very different on these compared to everyone who's doing the tick box. Yeah, I mean, within our close circle of friends, you're the outlier in a sense uh, in wanting to subscribe to the idea of marriage. So it is an interesting sort of situation in our friendship circle. But um, I accept all of those reasons for wanting to get married. I think they're all very relig- like legitimate reasons to want to get married. Um I guess for me, and again, it is a very personal decision at the end of the day, but for me, like you touched on, um, it is, in my view, a very patriarchal institution. And while the way that marriage takes form now is significantly different from the way it took form in the past, um, I do think that entering into a marriage... Yeah, exactly. You know, it's not... 
I mean, hopefully, at least um, in Australia, it's not sort of a property transaction anymore. Um, a lot of people do use it as an opportunity to express their love and commitment for one another and to share that with the people closest to them. Um, but for me, I do think on the whole, a lot of people that go in with those intentions can then still fall into those sort of very rigid roles that mm. uh, a marriage sort of manifests. You know, often when you do look at a lot of the research, um, it does say that, you know, once a couple gets married, that a woman assumes even more of the sort of emotional and uh, physical labour in that relationship and that sort of intensifies if and when the couple decide to then have children. Yeah. Um, I think also being a family lawyer <laughs> has oh, definitely yeah. in some respects informed or maybe clouded my perception of marriage and what it can do to people and especially women. Um, That's so interesting because uh, I feel like when mm. when I did family law, um, I remember one of the principal lawyers there, he'd come from like a pretty bad sort of family situation and he was the mm. same in the sense, I was like, does this put you off wanting to get married? And he was like, no, like it actually makes me want to do it better. And I think that's where I got my idea from mm. in the first place because I heard him talk about it in that way. And I was like, this is so weird because he's, you know, not a guy you would sort of expect to say that at all because he had such a horrible, um, and I didn't know the whole family circumstance, but I knew it was very difficult. And the stuff we deal with in family law, for instance, the family violence and the poverty um, like you said, often at the expense of women. Yeah, it is enough to make anyone really be put off marriage for life. Yeah, and it's interesting how it can inform people's experiences in different ways because I found the same to happen with my colleagues. Um, there were those colleagues that were in the camp of wanting to use their professional experience to actually better their relationships um, mm. and, you know, their decisions to get married, whereas other people were just like, no, <laughs> I'm never going to, you know, sort of put myself in a position where I can be um, made vulnerable or exploited in that way. Um, but having said that, I mean, I also acknowledge that all of those things can happen outside of being married to another person, right? Mm. Like people still fall into rigid gender roles when they're not married in the context of like a heterosexual relationship. I just think marriage makes it more likely. Um, and I also do, for me, and again, very personal, but I, I do feel like there is this relationship hierarchy in society and that people that are married sit at the top of that hierarchy. Like for a lot of people, getting married is seen as like the next milestone after, say, living together. And it's like, why is that... Yeah, like why is that seen as like a step up, if that makes sense? Like because like you just said, you know. What would be an alternative milestone? Just being with someone. Like let let each couple define what their milestones are. Like you just said to me, you know, Nick and you have been together for over a decade. Um, and what's to say that that relationship is any less committed than, say, another couple that may be married to one another? You know, it's it's really interesting because now we're at that fork in the road of life where people are doing the big ticket items, like for instance, getting married and getting engaged, having kids and, and that type of thing. And I think if it wasn't for my very close group of friends who 
do approach things quite different differently. I think I wouldn't. Um, I think I would feel a sense of pressure from um, my friends to do certain things, and I wonder if that's the case for everyone else. Because, like, one thing that I love about my closest friends is that we've all taken really different roads. Like, we've got, you know, our friend in London, we've got our friend um, in Canberra, we've got like you who was going to go up to the Northern Territory and do all these other things and we've got people's careers and and things to think about, travel. Um, And so it's never been like maybe that's what's unusual because when I saw this couples therapist, she was really surprised that our friendship group, um, you know, no one, everyone had expressed that they did not want to have a family and she thought that was really unusual. But that's, that's sort of my compass now like you know that's and so I don't feel that sense of I need to get these things done it's only in these random um snippets you know when a particular Facebook um notification might come up and it's you know someone from high school who's got three kids now or something like that that I'm like am I meant to be doing something else with my life and it's interesting because like I just said like I am committed to the idea of never getting married and even I have that sort of knee-jerk reaction when I do see that someone on my social media typically someone that's kind of peripheral to me um, is kind of ticking off those boxes you know oh yep they've moved in together they've got engaged they've got married they're pregnant and it's strange because yeah like I don't actually want to be married but when I see that I do feel that sort of pang in my chest where I think shit like I'm being left behind, you know? Why am I not in that position? I think that's that is you've hit the nail on the head. It is the being left behind bit. And I don't really care as much when it's like um people who are not close to me. But if you were off living a white picket fence life with, you know, husband and child and I am not and I'm still doing the job that I'm doing now, um and I think I would definitely feel very um, sad about it as well because it's like, oh, she's getting on with her life and leaving me behind and, like, yeah, it's it's that. It's, it's running that race. But I think one thing that we are all very good at is running our own races. Like I don't think there's been much comparison between any of our friends. Like, you know, people have quietly bought their first home and to, you know, very beautiful fanfare. Um, people have, you know, even amongst my other friends who've, who've had children, it's not a big thing. It, like it, it is big, but it doesn't know, it doesn't define their identity in the way that like I think I expect some people to. And I think I'm just reading too many books and too many things that are ahead of time before they're actually happening. But it is one of my biggest fears that, you know, I will be left behind um, with my closest group of friends. I do think that's an opportune segue into sort of what we next wanted to talk about, um, which was this particular Life Uncut episode that was all about sort of, yeah, that whole idea of running your own race. Um, and for, the, for those people who don't know, um, and Anna, you can fill in the gaps because I don't know everything, but um, Life Uncut is this episode that is hosted by, what are their names? <laughs> I've already forgotten. <laughs> So they're both from The Bachelor, which should not put That's you right. off. Initially, it did, but Laura Byrne and Brittany Hockley. 
Yes, and Laura Byrne is, you know, in a serious long-term relationship. She has a child and Brittany is someone that is a long-term single uh, person that does not have a child. So, and I think that's one of the actual biggest strengths of the podcast that they're able to talk about all of these sort of big issues, but from completely different perspectives. Kind of reminds me of the conversations that we have amongst ourselves, you know, me being someone that's been single for a couple of years and you being someone who's been in a long-term relationship for a decade. That's why I love it so much because it offers those two perspectives. It's not just two people talking because I don't want to hear just about Laura's stuff. Like she, um, so, because you haven't watched The Bachelor, but she met her um, fiancé, Maddie J, on The Bachelor, which is the weirdest TV show ever. But <laughs> nevertheless, they um, they met on that show and then they um, got engaged, they have their baby, and so they're living sort of that idyllic life, whereas um, Brittany Hockley was very uh, famously dumped by that really, really fugly honey badger guy um, <laughs> uh, who... Oh, and then she went back recently in Bachelor in Paradise and was hooking up with Tim and then got ghosted by him. And he's just such a piece of trash. Uh, see, I know nothing about them pre this podcast. And I have to admit, I was like pretty skeptical going into this podcast because I'd heard whisperings about, you know, them being on these TV shows. And yeah, but I've been like really pleasantly surprised by just how much I've enjoyed the podcast and how relatable the themes have been. Um, And this most recent episode was being single in your 30s, which, again, so, so timely, having just turned 30 this year and being single. So what were some of the key takeaways that you took from this episode? I think I really identified with uh, Brittany's sort of struggle about you know, needing to have all your shit sorted when you do turn 30 or that when you are in your 30s. Um, And that kind of goes for, you know, your work situation, your financial situation, your relationship situation. Um, Yeah, I think we internalise a lot of these like socially conditioned expectations that people have around life, especially when you're a woman and you're kind of also wrestling with the added challenges brought about by, you know, the biological clock Um, and, you know, as someone that has had PCOS and PID um, issues that sort of affect my fertility, I've definitely felt that pressure intensify as I've turned 30. Um, So, yeah, a large part of my enjoyment of the episode came from how much I could identify with those pressures um, around turning 30. Um, And I think the other thing that I really enjoyed was just how nuanced the episode was. Like, it wasn't just about sort of shitting all over turning 30, but it also wasn't about sort of glorifying it and making it something that it Mm. wasn't. It It was about exploring all of it, the positives, the negatives, like everything in between. Um, What about you? Did you enjoy it? I really enjoyed it and, um, you know, I recommended it to you and our friend Mel because I just thought it was, yeah, like you said, the perfect um, um, balance of nuance and honesty and rawness and I think this is something to be gained from that episode by everyone. So, you know, obviously I'm in a relationship but I, um, I gained a lot 
in terms of insight into what my friends are going through um, and um, also really did also identify with those things that she was saying about the pressures of, of hitting your 30s. So I think this is something that's been like kind of, I've been thinking about this a lot, but the millennial sort of generation, we sort of, um, we've prided ourselves on being child prodigies almost, you know, like where the Tinder generation and people our age have started amazing startup companies and they've done great things. Like, you know, look at the shameless girls, like they're 25 and they've got their own sort of media um, um, empire and, um, you know, people are becoming increasingly young um, and very, very successful. And I think there's a huge amount of pressure now um, that you're in your 20s to be doing the hard yards of hustling and to really um, have that success before you turn 30. And I deeply feel that. I don't know if you felt that before your 30th birthday, but um, and whether that success be career success, um, and that's you know the bit that I focus on, or whether that be familial success, which is what um, Brittany was talking about. Um, that sense of she thought when she was going to be thirty that she'd be married with a kid. I'm pretty sure. I think sort of we've both experienced that pressure, but just in different ways. Um, so for you, it's typically been centered around the stuff around work and, you know, having a house. For me, it's very much been centred around issues around like being in a relationship and having children, um, mm. which is why I really enjoyed the episode because, like you said, they live very different lives and that means that they bring really different perspectives to this issue. Um, and one of the things I really enjoyed about the episode um, was, you know, Brittany was talking a lot in a really vulnerable way about the real struggles she goes through, you know, not having a partner to sort of share her ups and downs with um, and to just share life's experiences with. And Laura acknowledged the sort of legitimacy behind her feeling and thinking that way, but equally kind of reality checked her as well in saying that, you know what, like, like, yes, being single is hard, but also being in a relationship is not easy either. And I think I'm very guilty of this where a lot of the time I just think, oh, if I was in a relationship, like everything would be okay. I would be so happy and sorted. And it's like, well, hold on a minute. Um, both of those situations bring their own sort of sets of challenges with them. And we tend to glorify and romanticize what we're lacking and not appreciate the challenges that come with it. I think that's what I also loved so much about having the balance of the two of them because it's so easy when you listen to, like, for instance, if there's a podcast with, like, all three the, of the hosts in monogamous uh, long-term relationships, like, there's no perspective and it's easy to think one thing, whether that be romanticising and glorifying what single life is, which is something, like, you know, the reverse of your, what you just mentioned then, like, which I do sometimes because I haven't been single ever, like in my adulthood, I've been in a relationship for my entire adulthood. Like that's pretty messed up. <laughs> if you think about it, like, you know, that's a really messed long up. time. It, 
it's just a different life experience. And like I saw during the first iteration of lockdown when sort of Nick and you were going through your issues, that does bring us its own set of challenges with it. You know, it's easy for me and, and I'm not taking away from sort of the sort of loneliness that I've experienced and the intimacy I've craved being single in lockdown, but equally lockdown is like the perfect sort of uh, storm for a relationship and the issues in that relationship. And I think that's part of the reason why we've actually seen a lot of couples breaking up um, during lockdown. Yep. And so, we've also seen a rise in instances of family violence. Yeah. Um, because of, and, and, you know, a lot of them are intimate partner relationships. So um, well, what Laura was saying too was about that idyllic romanticized picket fence and family like she was saying look there are so many times where I just want to go to the gym and I just want to you know live the single life and do these things and like it's almost as if we're always looking the grass is always greener on the other side like we're never just content with what we have and I think it was Laura talking about that and how the other mothers who were at the um, Brit's birthday getaway like they were just like oh so relieved to be away from responsibility and just get to be present and hang out with my friends um I think that's what brought her home to Brittany when she was like oh yeah like you know I don't even have to think twice like think about our lives like we can literally we literally did just go and get a coffee and didn't have to ask anyone for permission didn't have to you know make sure your child's occupied by someone um, or supervised, uh, you know, it's, it, and that's a luxury of, of the situations that we found ourselves in where we're not, um, tethered, but, um, on the, the, like the inverse of that is also, yeah, the things that you don't have of that. So, um, and, and that's being single and, you know, or not having the pick offense, whatever, whatever it is, there's always something that's negative. And then you can flip it into a positive as well. Yeah, I, I just really loved how vulnerable both of them were about their experiences and the positives and negatives that come with their different situations. Um, I did also like the fact that they touched on this whole idea of having children, though, because I think for someone like me, um, mm. while I have come to kind of be much more accepting of my single status, um, one of the things that I definitely do think um, is made a lot harder is, you know, accepting that when you want to have a family and mm. especially being a woman, I mean, yes, there are other options like freezing your eggs, adopting, fostering, but I've actually looked into all of those options and they are really difficult options in terms of, yeah. you know, money and time and emotional labour. Um, so I think that is a real legitimate concern. And, you know, like you're going to be coming with me to see a fertility specialist in a couple of weeks. And it is something that's a lot harder for me to do on my own because if I do want to go through with the process of, say, freezing my eggs, that is an expense that I have to assume on my own. I can't share that yeah. with anyone else. Well, I was going to say it's the same for you and your house, for instance. That's a, yeah. that's a cost that you solely bear mm. I think that's why I'm so independent because um you know 
I know that when shit hits the fan, I can only count on myself. Um, mm. I don't come from a family that can financially support me. Um, and that's not a criticism. That's just the reality. Um, and obviously, I don't have a partner to fall back on who can support me. So I am fiercely independent for that reason. But that does mean that I put a lot of pressure on myself because, you know, I've just got me at the end of the day. Um, I think that's a really good way to think about things, though, because, like, again, even though I've been in a relationship for so long, um, we are very independent in terms of our finances. Like, the only time where we may ever um, even talk about joining finances is potentially um, getting a deposit for a home. And that's probably that, you know, all my income goes into my account. Um, and he has his own account, which I know people think is very odd, but it works. And I've also done family law and seen the devastation caused by the breakdown of a relationship. And quite frankly, I don't want to be in that financially vulnerable situation, especially since I've like busted my guts, getting myself through university, getting a job, working my way up, earning my money. That's my money. Like, you know, I'm not going to anything. The way that I think of money is that um, the foundation is that you are solely responsible for your own financial independence. And if it so happens that you get a partner and they want to join in with you on a on a joint asset such as a home, well, that's great. That's 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 um, you know cherry on the pie, but fundamentally um that you know don't assume that and I've never gone through life assuming that would be the case in fact my first preference was to buy a house by myself um and solely um own it because I wanted my own financial asset but with Melbourne price um the house prices are freaking crazy (laughs) um and you know there did come a point where obviously it looked like we're in a committed relationship and and that I could have the luxury of getting there faster by joining forces in the same sense that you would with a business partner and the arrangement would be for um, any joint asset that we own that we take out what that's proportionate to what we put in. So I think it's quite extraordinary that you have such a sense of independence about your finances having been in a long-term relationship for all of your adult life. Like, I think part of the reason why I am independent is because I've been single for most of my adult life Um, and also because I've grown up with parents who were very interdependent when it came to their finances Uh, and so I saw the sort of real um, shortcomings of that. Mm. But, yeah, I, I really respect the fact that you do have that sense of independence even though you sort of haven't always needed to. It's not, it's, I, you know what, I actually find it being quite frowned on to be like this. Like I've, you know, um, she's on the money, like, you know, that Facebook group, I think you're a part yeah. of it. Yeah. They all talk about I money I find it a bit stuff. annoying. <laughs> I also find it really annoying and I think I'm going to unjoin it. I only joined it to steal one of their free budget things, but, <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, there was like a whole discussion about combining finances and everyone's presumption is that you must. And mm. um, 
Nick and I were actually talking about taxes the other day because we were just saying, like, do we need to be taxed as a couple now? And Mm -hmm. um, obviously I have to get proper finance, financial advice on that. But, you know, that started off with us just saying it seems unfair. We live our lives very separately. I don't even know how Mm -hmm. much is in his bank account, don't want to know. And he Mm -hmm. certainly doesn't know what's in my bank account other than what he needs to know for the purposes of, like, the joint goal, which is the house Mm -hmm. deposit. But that's all he needs to know. The rest of the money, the rest of my purchases, all my bank statements, they're all mine because I earned that money. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's mine. (laughs) And I know I need to let go of that because I, because honestly, I don't I don't know how it will work in the future and um, I do think that's sort of the, the consequence of living a very independent life which is one day where we may need to combine finances for instance if someone is going to take parental leave um, then that's going to be an issue but um, I'm not there yet and it's yeah but people frown on it I mean I know the barefoot investor when I read his book he was saying yep definitely everyone. He's also a rich white man, though. <laughs> a rich white hetero man. <laughs> I well, he was saying because um, we both read the finance, uh, the barefoot investor, and there's some good tips in there. It's really good if you've never budgeted before, and I think it's really accessible. Mm. But mm. Um, that bit about everyone putting their finances in together, a part of me, <laughs> like I think the family lawyer hat was very much like uh, I wouldn't put everything in like you should always have an emergency stash of money and I know that sounds really um ominous that you know but I always I believe in secret stashes everywhere you never know what's gonna happen (laughs) honestly but also it's not ominous it's it's pragmatic like half of marriages end in divorce and I'm sure that the people that occupy that half didn't go in thinking they would be that half because they wouldn't have got married in the first place. So exactly, I agree with you. Like people change, circumstances change, relationships change, and sometimes the person you marry, you know, isn't the person you thought they would be or turns into a different person. So I think it's prudent like to protect not only yourself actually, but you're also protecting that other person because for all you know, you could end up being the crazy bitch in that relationship and trying to fuck over your partner and they need to have a secret stash to get away from you. (laughs) That's right. And um, I, on a very sort of um, sad note, like a lot of my family violence victims that I've seen over the the years, the reason Mm. why they go back is because of finances, because Mm. they can't, like living out on the street, it is more preferable Mm. to be living with their abuser than to be living on the streets so it's absolutely you know it's you know we've got very high rates of homelessness amongst middle-aged women we've got Mm. a disproportionate amount of family violence affecting women and essentially evicting women from their households so it Mm. it's something I will continue holding on to as long as I can um Mm. I realise this has nothing to do with Lifeline Cut, so I just wanted to take I know, one, we, we kind of took a segue. <laughs> one um, point that I did want to make about that episode, which I loved so, so profoundly, was when they were talking about friendships and in the investment into friendships, I think Brittany was saying being single gives you the time and space to put that investment into your friendships and really grow and nourish them. Um and I completely agree with the sentiment, but I don't think that's something that should only be restricted to if you are single. I think you should always be capitalising on 
on all the time you have with all all the people in your lives, whether that be your friends or your partner, but you should also be investing in your um, friendships. And that's what's beautiful about their friendship because, you know, she, Laura's busy with her family commitments, but they are still very close friends um, and there are times where, you know, she's time-strapped, but they still make the time to hang out and to do things together and I think that's really beautiful and that's one of the things I'm scared about as everyone progresses towards the next part of their life, which is when they start looking a, a bit more insular into their family life. Um, and I was talking to my mum about this actually because she's very close to her best friends even though they live in Canada and the United States and in WA and in Queensland. So none of them are actually in the same place. And they've been friends since they were in like primary high school and, you know, um, all left Vietnam after the war and were all refugees and displaced across the globe. And yet after 50 something years, 60 years, they're still best friends. Like I think that's so, that's what I want to That's incredible. Yeah, that's what I aspire for too because I'm like you. I I have my friends who are single, but I also have my friends in relationships and my biggest fear is um, those friendships sort of uh, withering away when people, like you said, do become more insular. And I think it's one thing when people start getting married. Like I've already felt that with a couple of friends um, where we just spend less time. Mm, I think... I think though logistically it can though, right? Because when you do enter into a relationship with another person, that's not just another person that you're then having to spend time with. It's also often their family and their friendship circle. And so logistically people just do have less time when they're in a relationship than when they're single. I think though... See, this is something that I struggle with because, again... Um, maybe because I'm doing things against the curve. But there have been numerous times where there's like an invite to like Nick's family thing or um, his friend's thing and I'm invited, you know, solely on the basis that I'm his partner and I've already got something else on, then I would definitely not be going to that event, which I think people don't do as much because just because you're in a relationship doesn't mean you're joined at the fucking hip like you have your own identity you've got your own friends and you've got your own things to do like I think that's a different story though like it's one thing um you know let's say you've got plans with your friends and then your partner wants to make plans with you then I accept that you'll be like okay well listen I've got friend like plans with my friends already but I guess mm. a lot of the time in the first instance when you go to your friend in a relationship and say hey are you free to do this a lot of the time they'll come back to you and say, well, actually, I'm spending the day with my partner doing something else or with their family doing something else. So often they've already made plans dictated by the fact that they're in a relationship, which means you end up spending less time with them. Um, oh. And I'm not critical of that. Like, I'm, I'm not being critical of that because it's just a logistical reality, right? When you're with a partner, you spend time with them and with their family and their friends. But even if you're spending less time with your friends as a result of being in a relationship that still doesn't mean that you don't invest in that friendship right like you know yes. and especially when people have kids for example like I accept that a fucking kid is going to drain up a lot of your time and energy um, but that doesn't mean that you know instead of maybe not being able to see your friend for a coffee every other day like you used to that 
maybe you'll write a letter to her or maybe you'll pick up a phone and start chatting to them once a week. Like you can yeah. still find other alternatives that mean that you're still investing in that friendship even though you are in a relationship now. I completely agree with that and I think that that that's a good way of navigating what you say is an objective problem which is you just genuinely do not have time when you do have um particularly a family I think I'm a bit more sympathetic to that than um being married um because there is actually a lot of time it's like that saying that like Arnold Schwarzenegger said something to do with um going to the gym and it's like look you literally have 24 hours in a day to do things it's it's not that you don't have the time it's just what you're actually prioritizing what you're choosing to put ahead of another thing and I guess for me I really deeply do prioritize my family and my friendships and sometimes it I do prioritize that on top of something to do with my um to do with you know Nick's stuff so every Sunday for instance I always go to the Sunday market with my mum um that's our family time and and that's something I always do every Saturday and if Nick wants to make a plan it has to work around that and I think my mum um really appreciates that and that's time that we we bond and we spend together and just yeah I think you just have to prioritize it in a way that um means that everyone kind of gets a bit of the pie and honestly after lockdown like I was talking to Nick last night and he's like, yeah, I'm going to go away to um, Millgrove with Eli. We're just going to play video games for a weekend. And I'm like, thank God. Because, <laughs> like, you know, I just need that time and that space. And obviously he's the same. Yeah. Like, you know, he loves his best friend and wants to spend that time with him. Actually, this links well into our final segment because I'm just noting the time. But um, recommendations, I so I'll go off of that. Well, just off of what you said, my recommendation is the last two episodes of the last season of The Bold Type, and we'll go into it in further detail, um, I think, in our next episode. But it um, pretty much The Bold Type is a great show to watch just, you know, to in this pandemic to get your mind away from reality. But um, it involves them dealing with a very tricky um, issue to do with one of the characters not wanting to have a family, whereas her husband does. And the conversations that they were having was so reminiscent of conversations that I was having with Nick earlier this year um, during the first lockdown and the different views about family and that type of thing. And I just thought, it's something that we don't really see um, depicted in shows um, for like millennial type shows. You know, usually people just get married and then they have a baby. And I, I remember when the first trailer came out and it looks like um, Sutton's pregnant and you were just like, oh, this is so <laughs> predictable. I hate this show now. Yep, I was shown to be very foolish <laughs> because that, like you said, though, that is what pretty much every other show does, right? Like, again, people hit those relationship milestones. They move in together. They get married and now they're pregnant. And I think it really hurt me when I saw that trailer because Sutton, the character, the female character that we're talking about, was someone that was fiercely independent and very career-oriented. And to sort of see her fall into those 
you know, very traditional relationship tropes was a little bit disappointing. So I was really, really glad when it didn't eventuate that way. You can see that with the character herself, though. Like, I think there was a moment where she, when she did discover she was, um, and obviously, spoiler, spoiler, <laughs> that um, she she was pregnant, but she miscarried. And I think she said, I just felt like relief, which was so strange. And yeah, look, um, I think, yeah, we will discuss it further. But um, what was your recommendation? Oh, God, I had so many. So I'm trying to like narrow in on just one or two. Um, so I'm going to recommend Taylor Swift's new album folklore um oh my god like (laughs) you know what like so being single and living alone really does intensify the loneliness and isolation that one feels but I really did feel sort of seen and heard through that album like this is honestly probably my favorite Taylor Swift album or right up there with like 1989 um because even though it sort of touches on like familiar Taylor Swift themes, like around, you know, breakups and heartbreak and all of that stuff that again, personally really does resonate. Um, She kind of broadens it to kind of, yeah, focus sort of more deeply on kind of like, yeah, those themes around like loneliness and isolation. Um, Very pandemic friendly album to be listening to. Um, I think she wrote it during ISO. Yeah, she did. The whole thing. Like, I think during, like, one of the songs, I can't remember which one it was now, but she actually said something about the fact that, you know, um, like, I thought this was going to be, you know, a a very different time, but now it isn't, and so I'm sitting here sort of writing this. Like, that was essentially the theme of it. Like, yeah, that she's kind of had to revisit all her plans, like most of us have. Um, And I also did really like the sort of shift to, like, far more like indie folksy sort of um, music like that is you know my my happy place even though that kind of music is super super sad and depressing um so i know i i love that shit um so yeah highly recommend um and then a book that we sort of both devoured um a lonely girl is a dangerous thing um and now i'm realizing both of my recommendations are like really on theme <laughs> Um, (laughs) I didn't mean for that to happen that way. Um, but I finished reading it a couple of weeks ago, but in essence, um, it's a book written by, uh, a Taiwanese Australian author, Jessie Tu, about a 20 something year old girl in Sydney who was like a musical prodigy as a child and has sort of turned into this really self-hating and self-destructive a woman who kind of again like is wrestling with those struggles around feeling very lonely and isolated and essentially using men and sex to fill that void um mm. yeah and um it was also really interesting i think seeing an asian australian writer write so sort of graphically um, and almost brutally about sex. Um, Cannot agree more. I feel like the first yeah. page you were already hit with um, 
I think it was something to do with cunnilingus, but I was like, whoa, that was a lot for a first page yeah. paragraph or something like that. And, you know, I love it because as an Asian Australian woman, woman, I think um, there is so little depiction of sexuality in Asian Australian writers and there's a lot of views almost that um, Asian Australian women are either one of two things, which is one very um, like almost pious and you know not sexual at all and then on the other extreme is like exotic sex worker or something like that and so it was really nice to just see a normal depiction of um sexuality for a 20 something year old woman and it not being like a big deal it's just like that's just representation happening and we don't have enough of it because we don't have enough Asian Australian writers although I feel like we are seeing a lot more like African Australian writers um, Afro-British writers and Asian writers really coming out of um, you know this period um, and a number of our book club books for instance like Girl Woman Other are based completely on um, Afro-British experiences of living in England. So, yeah, exciting. And what I really like is that, like, the themes aren't thrown in your face. Like, at no point is it like, hi, I am Asian Australian and I am going to be telling you about my relationship with men and sex. Like, it just so happens that it is a woman that is of Asian background. And in this case, I'm pretty sure the protagonist is of Taiwanese background um, and yet she's just like every other protagonist she just happens to be from a different cultural background um, and yeah I, I did again very much personally identify with the really toxic relationship that she has with the men in her life um, nothing to the extremes that she did like I think the main guy that she's with he's just an absolute piece of shit like he is like yeah yeah mark matt some generic white boy name um but but he's just so disgusting like i just remember like he's very emotionally abusive and just really denigrates her during sex um and not in a way that she consents to yeah and yes. we find out he's a um a, like asian woman fetishizer in the end it's disgusting yeah, so, um, yeah, it was really hard to read in parts. Like, I did have to sometimes put it down because, I don't know, it was just, just too close too close to home. But on the whole, mm. like, I can't believe it's her first book. Um, and she's just a very impressive person. Like, we both uh, virtually sat in on her sort of writer's festival interview with, was it Alice Pung? Yes. I think. Yeah. yeah, and I just found her to be very impressive. Like she's just very, very brave and very bold and just very un- unapologetic about who she is and what she writes about, which, again, is very refreshing to see from like, an got- Asian woman's perspective. Absolutely, and I think there were lots of things she was talking about, sort of that that anger of being a woman and, you know, that's putting aside all the Asian aspect to it, but just being a woman and woman's anger and treatment from men and the patriarchy that came across in the Melbourne Writers Festival interview um, was just really, really finally, like, you know, to see that represented in the mainstream is incredible and I'm so excited to see what's 
next to come out of her. Um, So thank you again for joining us for our very belated episode of 2020, eight months in, almost nine months in, in fact. But just in time for spring, um, we will try to do this a lot more regularly. And hopefully um, we'll get to record in the same room soon, Cushy. (laughs) All right. Bye, everyone. See you guys.